Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we continue to discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 85th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. It's still 2012. We never left. Yeah. So 2012, another one of our more than five movie nominees years. So we've done a bracket. We love a bracket. So we discussed the losers last week, though questionable whether some of them were losers, really. And we're back to discuss the winners this time. So to recap what the matchups were, the first was our one seed Argo and our 10 seed Red Dawn and Argo won. Yes, which to be clear, Radon was a, a movie we added. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should listen to the first episode. We can't really get into it. It's a lot to say, yeah. but just go watch, listen to the first one. Yes. So Argo won. Yes. So our next matchup was Amour versus Les Miserables, and Amour won. Then we had Silver Linings Playbook versus Life of Pi, and Life of Pi won. Next, we had Zero Dark Thirty versus Beasts of the Southern Wild, and Beasts of the Southern Wild won. And finally, we had Lincoln versus Django Unchained, and Django Unchained won. So now we're going to run back through our winners and say, would we have been mad if they won? Argo, are you mad that it won? I'm not. Are you mad that it won? No, me neither. Cool. Would you have been mad if Amour had won? No. Me neither. Okay. How about Life of Pi? No. (laughs) That's a long pause. (laughs) very marginal i'm also marginal but i will say yes i guess even though it would have been not that bad would you have been mad if beast of the southern wild one no she's marginal folks she's real marginal i'll say no as well and then would you have been mad if Django won no no okay great (laughs) so i guess we start with our marginal life of pi and then we can go through the rest of them cool okay So Life of Pi, do you want to give me the rundown of what it's about? Sure. So Life of Pi is about a young Indian boy who is living with his family in Pondicherry, which I did not know this was a French colonized part of India that did not become independent until 10 years after India achieved general British independence. But it's wild. Neither here nor there. And his family owns a zoo. As he's getting older, India goes through this period of time known as the emergency, where the government was basically taking away everyone's civil liberties. So his family decides to leave India with their zoo and move to Canada. And so they get on this boat with all their animals. It's a Japanese cargo vessel. And while they're making their way to Canada, they encounter a storm. The boat sinks and Pai is left in a lifeboat initially with some of the animals, an orangutan, a hyena, zebra, and a tiger. He is adrift, and we watch him be adrift for a long time. Relatively quickly, the hyena kills the orangutan and the zebra, and then they seemingly all just disappear, and he's left on the boat with the tiger. So the film is him managing the tiger, trying to keep the tiger and himself alive throughout this process. They a number of things out at sea and eventually they make their way to Mexico after being at sea for over 200 days. The tiger leaves and, and goes into the forest and 
Pi is left alone. This is all happening within a framing device where we see the older Pi who is telling his story to an author who's interested in potentially writing a book about the story. And it is told at the end that that's one possibility of what happened. The other possibility is the people he was in the boat with were the cook from the boat, his mother, and another crew person. And like the hyena attacked the orangutan and the zebra, the cook killed the crew person, ended up killing Pi's mother. Pi killed the cook and was left with himself in this boat. And the the animal portion is all a metaphor Mm -hmm. for his experience. So that's Life of Pi. I think I liked it a little bit more than you based on our discussion last episode. I will start with... It is stunningly beautiful to mm-hmm. look at. It is a gorgeous movie in every respect. The cinematography is stunning. There are tons of shots that look like beautiful paintings. Like you're like I don't even know yeah. how you have done this. This is stunning to look at. Gorgeous Angley. And also the CGI is great. The tiger is great. <laughs> the tiger is very believable, especially for 10 year old technology at this point it's pretty remarkable i think the performance of the kid is really good Mm -hmm. he's great i mean it's a tall order to be acting in any situation where you're sort of like alone that's tough as an actor (laughs) because there's nothing to do but then you're adding in the element of he's acting against a fake thing that's not there through the course of it it's remarkable he's done a great job and he's 17 years old and it's his first film role it's pretty i found it impressive it's very impressive. He's great, but also that speaks to Ang Lee being great. It's very difficult for a director to get a performance like that out of someone who is a child and has no one to act against. Yes. <laughs> it's crazy. So I, I think it's very well achieved. It's a well-made movie. I think they achieved what they set out to do. I think the story of it just didn't work for me specifically. <laughs> when I, It's like I can see how it would work for other people. I know it was a book that people loved before it was a movie. Mm-hmm. And I get it. It comes around. It's at the end. They're like, but maybe it was all a metaphor. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. The like premise of it is the guy shows up at this house and he's like, I met your uncle and he told me you have a story that'll make me believe in God. And that's how they've set this up. And he's telling the story and then it becomes this whole crazy experience. It affects the writer a lot. And I just was sort of not affected (laughs) in the same way. And so then I was like, okay, it's a wild story that was probably a metaphor. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Mm -hmm. There are gorgeous shots and not every story works for everyone emotionally. That's too true. (laughs) I will echo everything you said. There are some particular shots in this movie that are like, oh, look at you. There's early on the scene when he's underwater and he looks up and the ship is sinking above him. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's that's rough. That's rough stuff. (laughs) I did have the moment, though, too, watching this movie of realizing like, oh, this movie was released in 3D, which I don't know. I'm glad I was able to tell that from watching the movie because this is relatively shortly after avatar so they were still like in the 3d craze of things and there's a scene i think it's the scene with the flying fish where you're like oh yeah Yeah, well there's parts where it gets very like glowy and you're like this feels avatar inspired for sure which i didn't necessarily love i love siraj rama in this movie Mm -hmm. i thought he was wonderful and again agree what a tough role for your first role in a film Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's hard stuff i don't i I have a little bit of heartburn about just the origin of the story that this is a story written by a white guy about spirituality and finding yourself set in india and it's a little Mm -hmm. it's a little eat pray lovey and i was like this Mm -hmm. is uncomfortable so i do want to 
mention that. But yeah, I I guess, you know, I can say that the ending just worked better for me. You know, I we've talked about this before. I don't tend to love movies that have animal characters in them because I tend to find it too distressing to watch and not in the way that the film, I think, intends. I got pretty weepy early on in this movie when as they're getting into the lifeboat, I think the zebra is in first and the hyena jumps in and then they get the orangutan who's floating on a bunch of bananas and they pull the orangutan in. And Saraj Sharma says to the orangutan, orange juice, which is the name of the orangutan, what happened to your baby? And I, I got, I started crying, which is mostly based on my knowledge of orangutan reproduction. I don't know how much you know about how orangutans reproduce. But Probably not as much as you. Orangutan are unusual for primates. The mother's raise their children alone they have one of the longest gestation periods of any primates they're pregnant for eight and a half months which is very similar to humans obviously mm-hmm. but they like will not put their babies down for the first couple of years of life and sometimes they nurse their babies until they're eight years old and then very unusually as well sometimes not so much their sons who leave when they hit puberty but their daughters will come back and visit with their moms and learn how to raise new babies because they they don't reach sexual reproduction age until they're 12 a lot of them don't have kids until they're 15 16 it's very comparable to humans but even a tighter bond so when he's like you lost your baby i was like no orangutans moms never put their babies down (laughs) so you know that's that's me but i you know i think similar to atonement i like the sort of meta narrative in the story about why we tell stories and as an atheist when they start this movie it was like this is a story that's going to make you believe in god i'm like okay probably not we'll, we'll see <laughs> but there's this angley quote about the movie where he's he, apparently angley is a taoist buddhist and he says i believe the thing we call faith or god is our emotional attachment to the unknown and so i think they set up right the pie character when he's a kid we see him trying out many different religions as a way of being like when we say this will make you believe in god we're not talking about the christian god just to try to be clear my reading of it was more about why people tell themselves religious narratives and it's to comfort themselves right it's a way of processing trauma we tell these metaphorical stories we tell these narratives as a way of processing how insane the world is and Mm -hmm. incomprehensible and random and you know Pi adopts his name, this irrational number that just goes on forever, right? That, yeah, that, that ending, I was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of getting to me. And then as much as I really, really hated when he reveals the metaphor or the real story, and then they cut to the author being like, so the hyena was the cook. I know. And the orangutan oh, that was, was so your bad. Uh, <laughs> thanks like, for Please explaining stop. the metaphor, dude. <laughs> I got it. There were enough clear parallels in the story you told to the Japanese. You don't have to sit here and be like, and I couldn't tell if maybe they screened it and audiences were confused. So they maybe that does happen. That I hated that, just to be clear. But the real story he tells is heartbreaking and horrifying. And when he's like, so which story do you like better? And you're like, yeah, I, I understand why people tell themselves these stories to help make sense of the universe. And I like that element of the movie so you know and again i learned that france had colonies in india yeah that was interesting i learned about the emergency for the first time so appreciated that because that was (laughs) things about india i didn't know yeah all right i think that's fair enough i I like that as a reading of it but you know life of pie baby okay okay so we should get to our do we want to do argo last yeah last. i feel like that's the usual way of things yeah so let's talk about a more what happens in a more 
Amour is about this elderly Parisian married couple who are both in the arts. The wife, she's a pianist and then was a piano teacher. And then the guy also seems to have some sort of arty career, but I don't I think they were both musicians or or musical teachers, but that guy we meet just happens to be her student specifically. So yes, it begins with them going to the show and, you know, you're getting a sense of their normal life. And then from there, one morning, they're doing their normal routine and the wife, all of a sudden in the middle of their conversation about breakfast or whatever, what they're going to do that day, she just sort of spaces out and becomes unresponsive and she's sitting at the table and her husband is trying to talk to her and she won't say anything back to him and he gets sort of increasingly worried and he gets to the point where he gets up to go get his coat and call the doctor because clearly something's going on and then all of a sudden she's fine she's gotten up she's turned off the faucet that he left running she's sitting there she doesn't remember that it happened he's like but i was talking to you and you were saying nothing she's like what do you mean i don't understand So it turns out that she has had a stroke, which I don't think will be a huge surprise to people. She goes into the hospital. She ends up losing control of one of the sides of her body. She comes back out eventually. We don't see any of the hospital time. Gets released. She's in the home. She's in a wheelchair. It's tough. They're in a little Parisian apartment. He's an 80-something-year-old guy (laughs) trying to help her get around. But they're trying to just get back to normal. She wants everything to be normal. She has all of her faculties. She can talk and read and think, and she just can't use one of her hands. And so they're just going to deal with it. But then as things proceed, she ends up having successive other stroke or strokes. She declines physically over the course of it, and it becomes – it gets to the point where she can no longer – function normally and she's in a lot of pain she can only say one word she's in distress it's a really bad experience for her and obviously for him they have an adult daughter who comes into the picture every once in a while so at first she comes in is sort of just like you know what's happening with mom they don't seem to see her that much and then she gets more and more concerned as things progress that maybe they need to give the mom more medical care maybe the dad shouldn't be the one taking care of her all of this sort of stuff's happening in that way where it's tough because she's not there taking care of them but she is their adult kid that has opinions about it and so the dad is sort of like you're not here (laughs) you don't get to have opinions about how this is going and it eventually gets to a place where as we saw little bits of at the beginning but didn't know what we were seeing he ends up smothering her with a pillow to put her out of her misery and he sort of duct tapes up (laughs) her bedroom and ends up abandoning the house i guess it's like unclear specifically what happens to it's him it's a little unclear if the ending of the film is literal i read some people suggest that what he's done the reason he's duct taped up some of the doors is he turns the gas on in his house and the last scene we see is actually him dying but it's like a murder i could see that situation there's a lack of clarity about specifically what happens to him. We've seen mm-hmm. at the very beginning that cops show up at the house and open everything up and her door is locked and they get in and they find her body in there. But we don't see him in the beginning. Yeah. So it becomes unclear what happens to him at the end. But that's the arc is him having taken care of her, getting to that point where her life ends. And then, you know, yeah. his life also ends in some way. Right. I think it's worth noting that between the first and the subsequent stroke, she specifically told him, I don't want to be placed in a hospital or hospice. And also at a certain point, she's tried to commit suicide and has specifically told him, I don't want to be alive anymore. So like yeah. when he smothers her, it's not. Yeah, you're not left thinking world. like, oh, no, he's murdering her. Like she a long time ago when she still had way more control over her body was like, I would like to die now, please. And he was like, you yes. can't leave me. It's 
serious, y'all. <laughs> it is. We've talked before about adult dramas. Mm-hmm. This isn't one for the kids, baby. Mm-mm. There's nothing for them here. It is sad, sad, sad. There are tears watching this movie. What did? What were your thoughts about it? How did you experience it? I really it? liked it. Me too. You know, I said in the last episode, it was interesting because I think I watched Les Miserables first. That was our matchup here, Les Mis versus Amour. And Tom Hooper's going ham with the camera in Les Miserables. And then you get to this movie. And I think once she's had the stroke, really after that first show, I don't think we leave the apartment. No. And there are scenes in this movie where the camera will be sitting in one place and we will see a character get up to do something in another room and the camera doesn't leave the room and we sit on the character not doing action. And it's it's really interesting. And, you know, you get a good sense of it's not a huge apartment. You get a good sense of the geography of the apartment and just their lives together. And yeah, it's so sad. It's so sad, guys. Oh, my God, this movie. Because they, they love each other so much. <laughs> it's like they, have this- they really do. And obviously they have a long marriage. And the I think the dynamic with the daughter is interesting because – I think she just left when she became adult. She now lives abroad with her Mm -hmm. husband, who she has a weird relationship with, to be honest. Well, yes, her husband or like sort of on again, off again guy she's in a relationship with, who is the father of her kid, I think. Yeah. Unclear. Who she at one point she's like, Jeff had another affair, but then he came back because everyone found out about it. And, but the worst thing is everyone found out about it. So now we got to deal with it. You're like, this and you're like what the fuck is this relationship? <laughs> but I think the point is like there's this one pretty harsh moment in the film where the dad is basically like, you don't get to say like, who are you even to talk about this? And you're like, well, she is the mom's daughter. But they really have become their own little world now that she's left. She's gone off. She's her own person. She has her own family mm-hmm. in the way that when people get married and start their own families, yeah, they're still part of your family. But it's a it's a different dynamic. And so they really are this pair. And yeah, to see him go through the process of having to let his wife go. And it really really is that it's like he doesn't want to let her go. She's ready to go way before she ends up going. And he is clinging on for a long time until he finally becomes ready or able or, you know, worn down enough by the experience that he can let it be over. But good God, it's harrowing. Mm How do you feel about it? I thought it was great. I thought that the emotions of it work super well i think it's beautifully performed oh we should say john louis trentignon who we have already spoken about on this podcast because he is the main character in z yeah what are the odds we'd hit two jean louis trentignon films <laughs> what in are two the subsequent odds? years and you found out that they pulled him out of retirement to do this movie so yeah apparently he had not acted in 14 years and he was excellent he was great emmanuel riva's great we both love isabelle Huppert, who plays their daughter so the performances are excellent it feels really just true it's one of those movies mm-hmm. where you watch and you're like this feels real these people are real <laughs> this really happened yeah i believe every bit of it and it you know it's so relatable because who hasn't come up against something almost exactly like this in their own life. And if you haven't yet, you will. Your life is going to end and it might be in this protracted, horrible way like this. And it's just a fact of being a human. This is sometimes how we go out and it's awful, but there are moments of, you know, beauty in their connection to each other, but it's tough. Mm -hmm. It's tough. 
I was singing along when they were singing Sur le Pont d'Avignon. Me too. I was like, <laughs> I know this song. I was once she loses the ability to speak. He's trying to get her to produce words with him. And so they're singing Sur le Pont d'Avignon, which we did in our French class. I was like, I know the song. Only yeah. Danza, only dance. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's a ton specifically to say other than it was a beautiful experience. And it's one of those movies. I feel like a thing that I love and get to experience not that often, but somewhat often when it comes to quote unquote Oscars movies is a thing where you just it's like so emotional and you've been crying for most of it and you leave the movie and you're like, I just had, like I had feelings. I just had some yeah. feelings <laughs> about that movie. And it was one of those where you watch and you're just like, that's it. I just experienced part of humanity there, man. It was really good. It's really good. It's yeah. really beautiful. <laughs> no more. But if you're going to watch it, do be prepared to have a sad time. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would expect anything else if you had even a cursory understanding of what the movie was, but it's true. It does deliver on sadness. You ready to talk about our next movie, Beasts of the Southern Wild? Sure. This was another emotional one. Sure was. (laughs) Beasts of the Southern Wild takes place in what's called the bathtub. It's basically in New Orleans in Louisiana. It is below the levees, though. So it's this floodplain area. And we are following a young girl, played by Kavanjane Wallace, who lives with her father in the bathtub. And her mother has left at some point prior to this. Mm -hmm. She has a fantastical imagination. She's, you know, processing how the world works through the the mind of a child. Her teacher at school has told this story about the aurochs, Mm -hmm. who are these animals that went extinct many years ago that were very vicious. And so she begins to imagine that with the melting of the ice caps that she's learning about, the aurochs are breaking free and, and moving around the earth once again. Meanwhile, her father disappears for a little bit, and then he comes back, and it seems like he's been having some medical problems. Yeah, they he, get into, he reappears with a hospital wristband and in a, and in a gown. Gown, yeah. And they get into a confrontation, which includes her punching him in the chest, and he falls down. And in her mind... She has broken something primordial in the world. A storm comes through and floods the bathtub. A lot of the people leave, but some of them stay. It doesn't seem like the waters are receding. So her father and some of the other folks there decide to blow up a portion of the levee. And she sneaks onto the boat and is the one who actually pulls the trigger to deflood the place. At that point, the government is coming through and being like, people can't live here anymore because it is not habitable and so they are taken to a shelter the father is given more medical treatment but they all escape back to the bathtub because they don't want to live in this government facility away from their community they want to be in their community in these sort of lowlands at a certain point she thinks she sees an indication that her her mother is off in the water she and a bunch of kids swim to this boat yeah they just sort of swim out to sea and then a boat thing happens to pick them up and then take them to potentially floating, her mother. <laughs> a floating brothel. And they meet yeah. a bunch of women and have an experience there. And she meets one woman who she thinks is her mother, who, who gives her a bit of a life lesson. And when she comes back, her dad is dying and he passes away. And she presumably is going to live on in her community without him. Yeah, if they're not actually forced out of the bathtub, I guess. It's true. What are your thoughts? I like this movie. I saw it back in the day. And Quavonjane Wallace, who was... I believe eight when they made Mm -hmm. this became the youngest ever nominee for best actress because of this performance. And I do find her great. She is captivating as hell. I also think her dad is really good. I like the actor that plays her dad. 
the community feels like real and interesting. I like all the cast of characters. It's one of those fun, interesting, trying to view the world through the eyes of a child things, which can sometimes be very successful and sometimes not. And I do find her world to be fascinating. She has this specific imagination. There's interesting visual stuff going on with the way that she actually looks at the world in addition to what Mm -hmm. she thinks is happening as an eight-year-old. And I find it to be very emotional. Her relationship with her dad is fascinating because he is... Like anybody who lives here in the bathtub is an interesting person, right? Like you're starting with the baseline of this is a fascinating community. He probably is not somebody who is totally normal. He's his own type of person. And they have this really interesting relationship where he clearly really loves her. And like she's his daughter. He cares about her. She's his family. But they also they live in separate houses kind of they each Mm -hmm. have their own trailer and then there are times when he is like like i don't want you in my house go to your own house (laughs) that's their vibe and so they have this really interesting relationship because as a product of the way that they're living she sort of in a lot of ways has to just grow up and be ready to do stuff he's gonna need her to be able to do stuff that eight-year-olds probably wouldn't normally be able to do so he treats her like an adult that he loves but also gets into conflict with all the time. <laughs> There's this time when she's mad at him and so she intentionally burns down her own house after he has returned. And so then he has to let her come move into his house. And he does that thing where he puts a tape line basically down the middle of the house and is like, you'll stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. My rules are for me over here. Your rules are for you over there. But good news for you, if I look at you and want to come punch you in the face, I can't do that if you're on your side. <laughs> that's against the rules these are the rules so it's just an interesting connection between these characters i think her imaginary world is interesting and i also think it's beautifully shot there are all Mm -hmm. sorts of interesting scenes in this i love the exquisite joy of the beginning when she's just introducing you to the bathtub and what it's like to live there and what it feels like to live there and they're having their one of their many holidays she starts off talking about how they have more holidays in the bathtub than anywhere else in the world because they like to celebrate all their various things so they're having one of their holidays and it's just shot beautifully and there's sparklers and it's great to look at it they want you to buy into why people would feel like they want to live here (laughs) right i just think it's an interesting experience my memory of watching it the first time was that it was not super narrative i remember coming out of it and Mm -hmm. being like it feels sort of like an experience (laughs) more than a movie and then i did find there was more plot i think than i remembered but it still is mostly about a vibe and a character and a world and just sort of dipping your toe into all of this (laughs) and experiencing it and being like wow that was interesting i like it what do you think about it so I liked some things about this movie. I liked Kevon Janae Wallace. I thought mm-hmm. she was great. I thought she was incredible. And I agree. I liked her her father's performance as well. Totally beautifully shot. Definitely like an interesting area. And I think the climate component of it is interesting as well. We're seeing New Orleans. This is a yeah. clearly a post-Katrina world. The the imagery of the flooding below the levees, you know, it's it's hitting at some some real world stuff. Their concerns about sea level rise are hundred percent justified. <laughs> Yep. I think the thing, the only thing that I struggle with with this film is, you know, when we watched Midnight Cowboy and I was saying, well, you know, people want to live like this. They can. I don't have a problem with this. Is this is your preferred way of living? Cool. The problem is like she's a child, so she Mm -hmm. can't make that choice. And I don't know. The movie ends quite triumphantly. And it is sad that her father dies. 
But I don't know that the movie, because of that, is really wrestling with the fact that she is in a very abusive situation. She is overtly neglected. There is a scene where her father slaps her across the face so hard she falls down. Mm -hmm. It's pretty bad. And I, you know, I don't know that the movie is really grappling with that. What is it saying about the treatment of this child in this place? And so that makes me a little a little uncomfortable. I'd love to see a sequel to this movie. You could cast Kavanjane Wallace again. I believe she's still working where she's an Whatever adult. Whatever became like, of her. I like and that. And is unpacking her childhood in this place. Maybe she's left and, you know, yeah. is living a different life and really coming to terms with what all of this meant. Because her father... It's understandable that he's also like, you need to grow up. I'm dying. You need to be able to take care of yourself. But it's sort of all these hallmarkers of toxic masculinity, right? He's always telling her like, don't cry. Don't be a pussy. Yeah. You've got to be strong. No emotions. And you're like, that's not true resilience. True resilience involves being able to experience your emotions and react to them. I'm torn because we are in her perspective. And it's totally understandable that as a child, she would not be like, my father's abusive. Yeah, and yada, that's yada, what yada. I was going to say. I, I sort of like your yeah. idea of a let's visit her again. 15 years later or whatever because yeah. that is a great idea but I, I do feel like there's a reason that this is how it is presented and it is a reason of perspective we're very clearly right. in her perspective and this is absolutely how she would experience it all and that doesn't mean that you as a viewer shouldn't have your own thoughts and qualms. opinions yeah. about it qualms about this situation but you're right that it's not like it ends in a way where they then are like and now we can all agree that this was a bad situation for an 8 year old child to be in Overall, I liked it. I, I did cry watching it. It gets you, baby. Yeah. Just a couple of qualms as I'm watching it, but I think it's good. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely don't watch this and think I am on board. I'm going to move, gonna move to, to the, the bathtub. bathtub. <laughs> I was watching it too being like the mosquitoes down there must be. Oh, yeah. That's so the horrible. worst. Yeah. There was there was crying. Oh, the scene I want to mention before we move on is I think exactly when this happens but there's a scene where she's having an emotional moment and she, it might I can't, why can't i place it she's asking her dad because it's clear that he's been sick if he is gonna be dead and leave her mm -hmm. alone and because she's like if you are gone then i am gone basically i i will not survive here <laughs> right. without you and they're having that moment of reckoning and then he sees that she's having this emotional experience and he's like like come up come over and lay with me <laughs> Like we can experience our emotions together, piercing through the veil of toxic masculinity. That scene made me cry, cry. But it's pretty. And it's interesting. And it's yeah. people that we haven't seen in movies before. So I that's always that. a good thing. I love yeah. it. And Kovanjane Wallace, whew, what a performance. She's I don't know how they did that. Mad coods to the director. I think he, maybe he also said her mother was on set helping her orient herself. Her mother's on set being like, I'm dying. I'm dead. Go, <laughs> go through the emotions. But yeah, they got a great performance out of this child. Mm -hmm. She's real good. Good job. Good job. Good job. All right. Next Django. up is Django. Django. What a movie, Django. Yeah. All right. So the basic strokes... It's long because it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, but the basic strokes are Django, our titular main character, is at the beginning a slave who's being moved from auction to whoever has purchased him's place, I guess. And Christoph Waltz's character comes upon them being moved and he stops them and he says he's looking for a guy named Django. 
And Django's like, that's me. Uh, <laughs> he says, hey, did you happen to be on this one plantation and, and see these three guys, these three brothers? Because I'm looking for them and I don't know what they look like. And Django was there and Django would recognize what they look like. And so he's like, great, you're exactly what I'm looking for. And then in great Tarantino style, he first offers to buy Django and the guys are like, we're not selling him. And so then it culminates into violent confrontation. (laughs) He ends up killing one of the guys and kicking the other one like he's pinned under his horse. He tells Django, this is what I need from you. Can you do that? Great. Let's make a deal. He quote unquote buys Django by leaving some money with the guy and he takes Django with him. And then Waltz and Django proceed to go on a journey. Christoph Waltz's character is a bounty hunter. So his whole job is, you know, when there's a bounty on the head of a criminal, he's always dead or alive. In these days, he goes, he finds them, he kills them, he turns the body in, he gets the money. And so he brings Django along on this journey. They do end up finding and killing the Brittle brothers. It goes swimmingly. They're a great team. He finds out from Django that Django's wife has been forcibly separated from him and sold to someone else and he doesn't know who he wants to go find her the way to do that is they're gonna have to go back to the place where she was auctioned to get the records to find out who she was sold to then go find her Christoph Waltz is like great I totally support you doing that but I really like working with you (laughs) it's fun having a partner in my bounty hunting business what if the two of us work together just for the winter until the ice melts you can make some cash and then I will come with you down to that place and we will find her together and so Django agrees and then there's a montage of them killing a bunch of people and then finally the ice does melt and they go down to the place they find out who has bought her and then they come up with a scheme Christoph Waltz is like the guy that owns her, you know, the way in to him is he loves Mandingo fighting where he forces slaves to fight each other to the death. And so he's like, I will come up with a persona that I am recently interested in this. And he has someone that I want to buy to add to my stable of fighters. And so I will make him an offer he can't refuse, basically so much money that he will have to entertain me. And we can go to his plantation. And then while we're there, we'll just sort of like happen to also buy your wife. And he won't notice, I guess, is the, is the way. So they go to his plantation. They confirm that she is there. And so Samuel L. Jackson's character, who is the most trusted slave on this plantation, he notices that there's something going on between her and Django that is being unspoken. He figures out exactly what's happening. He tells Leonardo DiCaprio, who's the one who owns the plantation, who then forces them to spend $12,000 on her because they realize she's the one that they actually want. Then as they're about to leave, you're like, oh, well, he got one over on us, but at least we have legally acquired her and we can now leave. Leo, because he's just the biggest asshole of all time, will not let them leave without Christoph Waltz shaking his hand. And so Waltz, feeling like he's been badgered into it, goes over to shake his hand and ends up shooting Leonardo DiCaprio. Then... All hell breaks loose. Django is there on his own having to face off against all of these various people with weapons. It becomes a huge shootout. They end up cornering him. He loses the fight. And so they are going to sell him again to someone else, like a mining company. An Australian Australian mining company. And then while he's on the way to be sold to the Australian mining company, he convinces the guys that he is being transported by that he's a bounty hunter. He's not actually supposed to be a slave. There's a guy back at the old plantation that's worth a bunch of money. If they would all just let him go back there, he could cut them in on the action. 
they fall for this. He kills them. Then he goes back and has another (laughs) big Tarantino-esque fight that they do eventually win this time. And he and his wife are happy. They ride away into the sunset with fun Western songs playing in the background. Django. (laughs) There's fun music in this movie. (laughs) But that's the broad strokes of Django Unchained. What are your thoughts? So this was the only one I'd seen before. I saw this film in the theater. Talk about a revisionist Western, am I right? right? You're telling us we're watching revisionist Westerns, but this is a revisionist Western. I will say when I saw this in the theater, I don't know if it was because Christoph Waltz is a different character than obviously his character in Glorious Bastards, but he's not giving a super dissimilar performance necessarily. And so it did feel a little bit like, lesser inglorious bastards to me at the time because it's sort of like a similar revisionist history fantasy vengeance narrative i think it it can stand on its own though obviously not having seen either of the films in a little while but yeah it's mostly a good time i think it is a little too long there are some things that drag there are some cuts i think the stutter step of the ending where you have the action scene and then it stops and then you have this whole bit with the australians and then it comes back and then you have this other big action scene is kind Mm -hmm. of awkward it breaks momentum and then the last action scene is pretty short yeah that i don't love the structure of the ending but you know it's tarantino when tarantino it's... had to find a way to get his cameo in there no <laughs> it's that australian guy <laughs> there's little moments throughout it that i like there's a scene where they go to leo's house and he has a stupid little coconut drink i love his stupid <laughs> little coconut drink yeah yeah, the performances are good. I think Jamie Foxx is great in this. This is a very famous like Will Smith passed on this because he thought it was too violent or something. I don't I know. I don't know what his problem was. I think it turned. You know, out right. I know what his problem is. He doesn't have good taste in movies. That is the problem. He can't choose scripts. <laughs> yeah, his agents in the '90s were choosing good shit for him, but then when he could choose anything he wanted, it became like, oh, you actually you don't have good taste this is the problem (laughs) this is the problem but i think it worked out jamie fox is great i think jamie fox is great i love all of jamie fox's outfits oh my god there's this early scene where no it's on the first mission when they're going to get the brittle brothers they haven't come up with their alliance yet but christoph waltz is like here's what we're gonna do we're going in you're gonna pretend to be my valet and so like that's your character get into character and you go ahead and pick your outfit for the valet and he's like i get to pick my own outfit and he picks the like fanciest most ridiculous it's like a crutched velvet little boy blue white frilly shirt outfit and it's It's incredible (laughs) it's great i don't know if there was a django action figure that came out after this but like you would want all of his little yeah it should have all of the various outfits because they are all good and they're very intentional and interesting because once he has done that and done his like dramatic flair outfit then he settles into some more normal clothes for their bounty hunting days but i like that they have him keep the bloody coat from the initial dead guy throughout the course mm-hmm. of the film because that's what they had him wear and the from the opening scene yeah how did you feel about Django on your I really s- like second it. viewing or subsequent viewings second I think I don't think I've seen this movie tons of times it's interesting I think because of how close in time it was I could see why you feel like Christoph Waltz is giving a similar performance though I feel like the characters are very different from each other so there's the characters way very different. less creepiness <laughs> He's so creepy and glorious bastards. Yeah. And in this, I feel like he's just charming and fun. But there is a specificity to Christoph Waltz 
as a person that I could see making them feel similar, especially they are back to back, right? This is the movie right after. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, like, fair enough. I think it's super fun. I really like, I mean, I'm a Tarantino fan, which I have said before, but I like this Tarantino era of revisionist historical revenge fantasy drama <laughs> where he's like if you want to see a bunch of nazis killed inglorious you want to see a bunch of slave owners killed django you want to see the manson family killed once upon a time in hollywood we can accommodate can fix history yeah tarantino's fixing history one film at a time but yeah i agree with you the end is a little bit choppy in an interesting way obviously it's long he likes to let his films breathe lots of things where you're like that's pretty oh we should say as we say with every western ever america's so pretty (laughs) there's lots of those scenes of people walking across beautiful parts of america and you're like well i kind of get it the west is nice (laughs) the west is lovely to look at but yeah i think the characters are all great i think the acting is fantastic it's beautifully shot i like his style i like the music in this specifically i think is really fun and gives it a unexpected tone i love to watch a house full of assholes get murdered by in tarantino fashion i should say this is the second sighting of walt goggins yes the man he plays a despicable asshole guy who you are very excited about seeing get murdered is he the guy who keeps getting shot in the leg during the final shootout repeatedly and he's like oh my leg oh god it's or is that i think he does get shot multiple times but i can't remember if that's there's also I can't remember if he's the exact same I guess guy, he gets but... shot in the dick, right? Because he was the one who was going to chop Django's dick off. Yes, that happens. He dies, you know, in, in spectacular fashion. Anytime you set up in one of these movies someone that you really hate, you're like, oh, I can't wait for their death. It's going to be very painful for them. <laughs> the but craziest yeah. death in this movie, though, is Miss Laura, Leonardo DiCaprio's sister. Yeah. The wire work on her is nonsensical, but great. <laughs> she flies she flies out of frame it's fun i think it's just a fun time it's exactly what i want from a tarantino thing funny dialogue good performances beautifully shot and it all culminates in some crazy an orgy of violence orgy of violence exactly i do like because i'm not sure i'm sold on it working but i do like that because there is the initial big battle and then he leaves and then he comes back you get to this moment of them coming back into the house and the walls are just like (laughs) painted with blood in the house they're all returning from the funeral for the initial dead people (laughs) that's true (laughs) so returning to this scene is is pretty fun um but yeah I think it's a good time. And there are lots of ways to do movies about slavery. We've seen plenty of the ones that are just like slaves getting tortured. And the point of it is, man, slavery was so bad. And you're like, we fucking That's know. true. We, fu- we fucking know it was bad, people. This is Mike's. This will be a conversation for another pod. But the whole cultural conversation about 12 years a slave and all of the people out there who were like, I had no idea it was so bad. I was like, I guess we needed this movie. <laughs> for those people but i don't know but this one they start with the baseline slavery's bad and wouldn't you like to watch us violently murder a bunch of racist white people in the south yes i would thank you quentin tarantino take my money all righty should we talk about the winner argo argo 
So Argo is based on a true story in the 70s. We've talked about this before because I think we did one of these years. There was a revolution in Iran. Then there was a hostage crisis where they captured our embassy and they were like, you guys can't leave. And we were like, oh, no. And it lasted for over a year. It was crazy. Absolutely within, wild. <laughs> within this situation, six folks who worked at the embassy got out before it was locked down. And in the film, they are staying at the house of the Canadian ambassador. He is sheltering them. And the CIA is like, if we don't get these people out and they discover that they escape from the embassy, there's a good chance that they're going to be killed. So we need to figure out a way to get these people out of the country without anyone knowing. And so they're working through different ways that they might be able to extract them. There seem to be no good ideas. And this extraction expert lands on this idea of what if we pretended they were a film crew making a science fiction movie and we're going to scout locations and I go in and then I bring them all out and that's our story. And it is, as they say in the film, the best worst idea that they have. Um, It is a true example of a just so crazy it might work. (laughs) Yes. And so a portion of the film is the extraction expert is played by Ben Affleck. It's him going out to Hollywood to set up the scheme because they have to make it look real. So he has to find a producer and set up a fake production company. And they try to get advertisement that this picture is happening. So if anyone tries to look it up, they will say like, oh, okay, yeah, this is a real picture. He ends up, they set that all up. They get the go ahead. He goes to Iran. He has the fake, you know, identities for all the the people. At first, one of them in particular is like, this will never work. I'm not doing it. It's not going to happen. But they end up going through with it. And they're able to get them out of the country under the skies of this film crew. And it's a very interesting story. How did you feel about Argo? I like it. I think it's a fun time. It plays out a lot like a heist movie in structure, which I always enjoy. And it obviously is fascinating what a wild (laughs) true story and it's one of those things where at the time at the end of it they're like this is amazing finally some good news for the american government and everyone in power is like no one's going to know we did this this is clearly going to be classified we have to make sure that the canadians get all the credit and so this was a thing that ended up being declassified many years later and now we can all see this crazy story i do think like it's one of those things where you're don't understand how it worked because it's so crazy but i actually find myself not that surprised because i think people will believe anything of hollywood <laughs> like i say that I in the movie you yeah you'll you can parade any weird nonsense in front of some people and be like it's for a movie and they're like "Ooh, movie <laughs> that, that sounds it. reasonable i understand why seven of you would fly into this political situation in iran to scout locations so that's a fun element of it i mean it's another this year in particular we have tons of movies that are big sprawling ensemble casts of tons Mm -hmm. of great actors and this is just one of many many of them from this year but i do love all these actors that are in this john goodman and alan arkin are the hollywood guys we got brian cranston we got all the fun crew here i think if we were talking about tension earlier with Zero Dark Thirty, I think it works very well in this movie. The way they have structured it, you know, he's there, he's teaching them. Nobody's sure if it's going to work because they're not CIA agents. They don't really know how to adopt cover yeah. identities. But, and it sounds uh, insane and it is yeah. insane. So right. fair enough. So eventually we get to this point where things are changing politically in the states. It starts to feel to them like the hostage crisis is going to end, even though it's it's not. We're like a year away. <laughs> But they feel like, oh, it's becoming too risky for us to do this because of various political things happening in Iran. And so the higher ups are like, 
it's off the day before they're supposed to do it. They're like, we're no longer doing this. We don't authorize it. You need to just Tony Mendez, the CIA guy, get out of there, leave them where they are, abandon the mission. And Tony Mendez is like, you know what? I promised these people I would get them out. Somebody's got to be held accountable. So I'm just going to do it. And he alerts his boss. It's happening. And so then there's this great, super tense ticking clock of he has just told them it's going forward. And now they have from the time he picks the people up to the time they get to the airport to make it happen. (laughs) Because they tried to cancel the entire thing the day before. They told the Hollywood guys, it's off. Break down the office. And luckily the guys went out for a drink instead of breaking down the office and you know they canceled the plane tickets that they were supposed to have so those aren't even available when they show up at the airport and so there's this joy of the stuff happening on the ground with the mission and him taking them through and the tension of that but then also the tension of going back to the states and having like this one poor guy's on the phone to, to the hollywood guys and they won't answer and they won't answer and he can't tell them that it's back on and then finally when they the iranians are calling their phone they're on the movie set and they're stuck somewhere away from their office because they're shooting and so luckily alan arkin is just annoyed enough with everyone that he's like you know what fuck it we're gonna be in the movie and they walk through the shoot and they happen to get to the office right when the phone is just about to stop ringing like it's all those fun yeah tense moments and while that's happening too there's pressure on the iranian side because at the embassy they apparently someone had compiled a booklet with photos of everyone who worked at the embassy what an and idiot they, they tried to incinerate everything but then the incinerator broke so they shredded it and they've they've had children compiling all the little shredded pieces and so at the same time at that point they've compiled photos of these six missing embassy workers that they're then trying to find and they're trying to notify the folks at the airport and they they kind of get away just so yeah right at the last moment they notice that one of the people from the film crew is one of the people that's missing and so they're literally running to the airport to try to stop them but they've just made it through the gate and then they've just made it onto the bus and then they've just made it onto the plane and then the cops are driving down the tarmac chasing down the plane that is then not noticing that because it's been cleared for takeoff (laughs) so they just take off it's good it's well structured It's tight, Ben Affleck. Nice job, Ben. So when we talked about Zero Dark Thirty as well, I mentioned that I I do really appreciate the opening of this movie where they don't just start with, oh, these these radical Iranians have taken over the embassy. Why would they do that? They start with the whole history of the West's intervention in Iran and the destabilizing of the government that we helped, you know, support a coup that took out a democratically elected official and put in the Shah who committed all of these atrocities. And then we sheltered him. Carter took in the Shah after he was ousted. And so you're like, okay, we're we're setting this up and not just being like, these Iranians, why would they do this out of nowhere? Yeah. And they also do interesting things throughout the movie too. Like there's a scene where they show how in the States, anti-Iranian sentiment has risen. And so there's a news clip of these white people just beating up this random Iranian yeah. guy. And you're like, okay, so we're not, we're not just vilifying Iranians yeah. in this movie. And then there's a cool scene ideal. where they've, they've had to, find a real script to be their fake movie to make it all believable so they put on a script reading in hollywood as part of their press tour (laughs) to try to get people to believe this movie exists and so there's this cool scene where they're intercutting between the people reading the horrible sci-fi script and then this woman who like an iranian woman who is detailing the crimes of the cia and why we have been led to this point and why we are now deciding to put the hostages on trial like it's a moment where it feels like things are about to escalate in iran but also in a way where you're at least hearing 
from them. It's not like the CIA is like, we've gotten an intelligence report that they're yeah. <laughs> about to start putting the hostages on trial, you know? So I appreciated that element of the film. I will say I was reading that after this film came out, there were complaints about how central the CIA was in this story. That So it was true that the CIA was like, we can't talk about our involvement in this, so let's just say Canada did all of this. But mm-hmm. in the film, they really are like, the CIA did most of it. And Canada was like, that's not true. We actually really still did a lot of it. And I think in the film, they specifically say the British and the folks in New Zealand won't shelter them. And the British were like, they came to us first, but we said it was too dangerous for them to be with us because we were also a target. So then we moved them to Canada and New Zealand was the backup plan to Canada. So they were ready to take in the six embassy workers that the Canadians couldn't anymore. And so New Zealand and Britain were like, come on, guys, guys. we tried to help, guys. We were were there. (laughs) And I think that's a little uncool. Let's be nice to our friends, New Zealand and Britain and Canada. That part in particular, I'm like, I don't, I, did they just feel like it was too confusing to lay that out in one sentence? Because it is one sentence of them being like, well, they went here and here and they ended up here. <laughs> so you're like, why did we leave out the fact that- I don't know why we got to put New help. Zealand on blast like that. Like they wouldn't do Zealand. anything. You might as well just not mention New Zealand. Right. They didn't do anything. But here's the real question. Where the fuck was Australia? Yeah. Maybe they didn't have an embassy. I don't know. But I don't know. What the <laughs> fuck, Australia? We thought we were friends. <laughs> Victor Garber plays the Canadian ambassador, and I love him. Always love to see Victor Garber. There's never a time when that's not pleasant. He's great. There were parts that I liked, like all the Hollywood stuff is fun. Just anytime people are doing commentary about Hollywood, that's a good time. Mm -hmm. And it's 70s, so you're getting that specific what's going on there. I love when they're looking through scripts, and one of them is like, how about the horses of Achilles? And Alan Argon says... Nobody yeah. has westerns anymore. And John Goodman's like, it's about ancient Troy. And he says, if it's got horses, it's a western. And like, <laughs> it's great. Fair enough. That's such, a good, that's such a good point. And then, yeah, I mean, you don't have a better bad idea than this. This is the best bad idea we have, sir, by far, is a great line. That's yeah. good. There is the fun bit, too, where Ben Affleck's having the conversation with John Goodman. And obviously, Ben Affleck directed this film. And they have a bit of dialogue where he's like, they need someone, one of the hostages or one of the six escaped embassy workers to pretend to be the director and he's like can you teach a guy to be a director in two days and he's like you could teach a rhesus monkey to be a director in a day <laughs> like, that's a fun thing to say to the director of the film i like it it's so good so yeah i always like a little bit of meta hollywood commentary but yeah it's just it's tight and entertaining and mostly it's an interesting factual, story. true story and it's like an ocean's 11 version of a real thing that mostly happened what's not yeah. to like <laughs> i had a good fun. time yeah, I like it. And this was the beginning of the time when all of Hollywood was like, you know what? Maybe we should respect Ben Affleck. We've been making fun of him for so long. <laughs> and now maybe, maybe he's, he's actually good. cool. Maybe he's talented. Yeah. Who saw that coming? And he's good in it. And and what's interesting is maybe it's because he directed it. I don't know. But I always find when he plays characters that are supposed to be the good guy characters, I don't like him and he's super boring. But I thought he was good in this. He's yeah, I like him. Being the good guy, there's not that much going on with him, but he is mostly just cool and normal and knows what he's doing and you respect him. Good job, Ben Affleck. You finally job, played Lauren. not an asshole and I didn't hate it. Good job. Good job directing. Good job uh-huh. acting. Good film. So is that it? Do we ask what should have won? I think that's where we're at. Well, I mean, we both said we're not mad about Argo. I sure did. Then we also said we're not mad about basically anything else (laughs) 
I feel like there were a lot of good movies this year. I don't know that I feel like any of these movies are great all time, going to show up on lists in the future movies. Mm -hmm. It was just a lot of really good, solid pictures. Yeah, I'm totally fine with Argo winning. Great. How do you feel? I'm fine with it, too. I think the Oscars didn't get it wrong. I think our next question, though, I do have something to say about if we could only have five nominees, would Mm. these be the five nominees? You want to slot out Life of Pi for Lincoln? Yeah, baby. Lincoln's got (laughs) to be up here. Okay. Lincoln's great. And then, of course, we can find a way to get Red Dawn in here somehow, and then it will all all make sense. Perfect. (laughs) But yeah, this is the most strongly I've felt about something getting unfairly knocked out in the first round. But like, okay, what can I do? It was a toss up. It's a toss up. Lincoln is a strong movie. Yeah. Okay. Shall we? Take a teensy little walk, a skip, a stroll down to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. I would love to. Now it's 2012. The man's sure a full grown adult. He's acting. He's got to have a movie out here. And it turns mm-hmm. out he does. He does have a movie that came out in 2012. It is called End of Watch. We didn't talk about it earlier because I knew we would be talking about it now. I have seen this, but you have not. Correct. I think it's a really good movie. It's David Ayers who wrote Training Day, directed this, and I think it is the only good thing he ever directed. He went on to direct not good stuff, but that's fine, David Ayers, you do you. This movie I really like. It is about Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena are cop partners. It's one of those, it's in LA, I think. It's one of those where you most, the movie is mostly them riding around in their car and like having conversations. Mm. So it's sort of this interesting character piece about their bond with each other and their lives. You know, it's a day in the life sort of thing that becomes like, you know, an emotional gut punch later on. But it's good. He's good in it. Michael Pena is good in it. So it could be an easy conversation of just like finding a way to nominate him for the movie that he was actually in. <laughs> sure. And if we're going to have that conversation, we should look at who the nominees were to see if there's any soft spots. Mm-hmm. where people can come out the winner obviously daniel day lewis for lincoln it's gonna happen it's gonna happen nobody's surprised obviously not that he was nominated but that he won clearly everyone knew it was gonna happen he's ddl mm-hmm. but then the other nominees this year were bradley cooper for silver linings playbook hugh jackman for les mis joaquin phoenix for the master and denzel washington for flight it's a soft category i think <laughs> i think yeah. there's space i think we could lose a couple of these people. I will say, I haven't seen The Master or Flight, so mm-hmm. I can't 100% speak to those performances, but I I feel like you could lose Hugh Jackman. I don't know that that was a... Yeah, I, Hugh Jackman, love the man. No problems with him here. No personal yeah. animosity. No. The movie's not great, and his performance is fine. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's fine. He can go. Joaquin's very good in The Master, though even though I said earlier, like, I don't love the movie. He's good. So sure, we'll keep him. Denzel Washington, I don't know. I love Denzel. We all love Denzel. The movie's okay. So I feel like it's one of those where the Academy was just like, you know what? We love Denzel. So we got to recognize him occasionally just to let him know that that we love him. Which, fair enough. But the performance specifically, eh, it's okay. So I think it's open and shut case. Just somebody out, Jill and Hall in. Yeah. Jacob and nominated. Sure. If we want to have a conversation about if he should have been in any of these other movies. Ooh, boy. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
No. Could he have been Bradley Cooper in Silver Linings Playbook? Yeah. Sure. Though I do think Bradley Cooper is very good, so I have no problems with him being in it. But yeah, he could have done that. It's not like there wasn't room for him in fucking Lincoln or something. Could he have been <laughs> so- some guy in Lincoln? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he could have been some guy in Lincoln, Django, Zero Dark Thirty, Argo. <laughs> These are all giant casts with plenty of some guy parts. Could have been one of those guys. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, probably the juiciest role for him would be Bradley Cooper in Silver Linings Playbook. But I don't begrudge Cooper. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're saying Jake could have been nominated for the role he was in. Sure. Why not? Would he have won that year? No, No. It's a DDL year. Nobody other than DDL was going to win this year. But he could have been nominated. Could have been nominated is all we're saying nominate the boy so conclusion time do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies again i liked a lot of these i don't know that i loved any of them is it possible i could rewatch django at some point in my life yeah i really liked a more i don't know if i ever want to watch it again that's not a light watch we've often had the conversation of the sort of if it was on bar which yeah. obviously is silly now because nobody actually has cable, but there's tons of movies in here that are, if it was on, yeah, flip it on. Amore is not one of those. <laughs> no. That's not getting flipped on for funsies. I would love to rewatch Red Dawn with you. I realized watching it alone, I was like, man, we should rewatch this together. I know. Part of the what was missing from the experience was the doing it together. Yeah. But yeah, we should do that next time we see each other. All right. What about you? Well, let's see. There's so many movies. Yeah, I mean, Django, I wouldn't be surprised if I rewatched it at some point. Argo, I feel like, passes the if it was on test for me. That's a yeah. fun one. Probably not a more. Too sad. Hopefully not Les Mis. Don't need it. No, no, no. I mean, Beast in Southern Wild is also so heavy. So Lincoln, Lincoln, Django, Argo, these feel like things I could rewatch. Yeah. Someday. They're good. They're good. So, where does that leave us? We learned things or we didn't learn things? What have we learned? This is one of these, you know, there's the narrative that Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Yeah. And this is Hollywood saving the day. That is pretty fun. (laughs) Hollywood swooped in and saved these six people. Thanks, Hollywood. (laughs) So maybe that speaks to the win. That fits the pattern. From this year, I feel like part of what we learned is they love big ensemble casts. Because there's tons of them. And there was a lot of employment happening this year in Hollywood. Everybody worst. Especially for Walton Goggins. I hope he got paid. But it's interesting. I feel like we're, we've been living through a moment of, you know, everybody talks about movie stars don't exist anymore, which I think mm-hmm. to a large extent is true. There's not really a, a person anymore where if they are in this movie, the movie will be successful. Don't need to know anything else about it. America's going to show up. That doesn't exist. But it feels like we've switched to this mode of like, how can we hedge our bets in a way where this movie will be successful if we can just like get enough people into it where when you're watching you're like oh that and then and also that I've seen them before like if you can recognize everyone on screen maybe that adds up to one movie star but I don't I don't know that that's proving itself to be true in like this year's movie climate so that's a conversation for whenever we talk about the 2022 Academy Awards yeah but that definitely felt like a trend Get everybody in your movie, baby. So, patterns? Revisiting angry white guys? Not a lot. No. Really not a lot. None of our traditional angry white guys. I mean, all the white guys in Django are real pieces of shit, but... 
It is a little different than what we're talking It's not like a Travis Bickle situation. <laughs> no. I don't think there are any Travis Bickles in this set of movies. Which no. is refreshing. What a change. Yeah. Biopics? Surprisingly, Lincoln is not a biopic. No. It is the very a little confusing. Tightly. You're, you're right. It maybe should have been called like 13th Amendment, but that's not a very... <laughs> maybe no one would see the 13th Amendment title. But yeah, it's very much not about how did Lincoln get here? It's here's the most important month in the history of, of yeah. the 13th Amendment, you know? So yeah, it's about a real guy, but it's not a biopic other than that. No biopics. No biopics. Oh, wow. We do have to mention our main man, Steven Spielberg, has a movie this year. We track him specifically. (laughs) How many Oscars uh, should Steven have? I don't don't know if we're adding any Oscars to Steven's Hall this year. I know. Sorry, Steve. It's good. Lincoln, it's just, it's so solid. It's wonderful Spielberg. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if we give him a director Oscar. I don't know that we give him the best picture Oscar. Well, sorry, Steven. I don't know what to say. I mean, you can't win them all. But yeah, I don't think we need to amend the awards in favor of him this year. So let's go down our list. Look for original ideas. How many of them do we have this year? Not a ton. Looks like three. We never have a ton. Amor is an original idea. Django and Zero Dark Thirty. Again, the more we do this, the more I'm like, I don't know how much it matters. <laughs> Lots of movies that are not original ideas are great movies. Yeah. Argo's based on a book. Beasts of Southern Wilds, a play. Les Mis is obviously a musical and a book. Life of Pi, book. Lincoln, book. Silver Linings Playbook, book. Book. Book, book, book. People really be out here writing books. But yeah, three out of nine. So pretty normal year. I wonder if we're ever going to get to a year where it's all original ideas. That'd be something. <laughs> we'll throw a party. Okay. I don't think I have any more conclusions. No. A lot of solid films this year. Watch Red Dawn with a friend. Please watch Red Dawn with a friend. I want one person to watch Red Dawn with a friend just so that I can know we've been spreading it in the world. Because yeah. I don't think anyone has seen this movie other than us. It was a huge box office flop. So what are we talking about next time? So a couple of things are coming up. I guess next time we will be touching on the 95th Academy Awards or the films of 2022. That's this year's Academy Awards. We're being last. Yeah. No, it's this year's. It's the Academy Awards that are happening now, but it's about the films of last year. Yes, we're being topical. The nominees this year are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, triangle of sadness and women talking what a collection yeah 10 whole pictures so our next episode will air prior to the academy awards airing and we're going to make predictions we're going to do what we're calling a season one stats wrap up we're going to talk about all mm-hmm. these stats we've sort of vaguely been tracking for the course of the <laughs> podcast so far and see yep. if it gives us any information that will allow us to predict what is going to win best picture this year yeah have we learned something is it quantifiable or is the whole thing just random chaos we don't Let's know find yet. Out. <laughs> but you've also yeah. raised the specter of something that we haven't talked about before season one mm-hmm. so this show is going to have seasons apparently apparently 
And then after we do our stats episode and our predictions, we will come back with our regular sort of bracket setup. 5v5. What do we think should have won, even if we think the Academy will pick something different? Those could be different things. You never know. And then we are, in honor of the season structure, going to take Mm -hmm. a short release break. So three more episodes, then probably like a month-long release break, and then we'll come back for season two refreshed and ready to go. (laughs) Yes. That's the goal, at least. So yeah, this will be like our season finale, culminating with the current year's Oscars. Pretty exciting. It's interesting to be doing something that doesn't feel like old news. I feel like I've been living in the past a lot over the course of the last year. And I mean, we've done some sort of recent years, but obviously we have no historical perspective on this year in terms of cultural impact. Who knows? Who knows? Which of these films will stand the test of time? Have you seen any of these yet before we get into watching them? I have. I have seen, well, I guess I'll just say them and then I can count that way. I've seen The Banshees of Inishirin. I've seen Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, and Top Gun Maverick. So I've seen four. All right. How about you? I've only seen Top Gun Maverick, highest grossing (laughs) film of the year. So excited to watch, you know, the rest. Well, I'm not excited, honestly, to watch some of these movies. One in particular? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it'll be fine. It'll all be fine. We'll get through it. Yeah. I think this is kind of a fascinating mix of things, though, because you've got a couple of big budget blockbuster type things. You've got a couple of teeny tiny little movies that probably nobody has heard of outside of the circle in L.A. and New York. So it's pretty cool. You got a foreign language film. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It is. It's an interesting mix for sure. All righty. So I'm excited to get to that. But in the meantime, if you have comments, questions, concerns, or anything to talk to us about, that we've already been talking about, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Check out our website, OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.